Dr. Tom Nettles, and he is on the phone with us today. Dr. Nettles is considered one of the uh, foremost Baptist historians in our um, in our time, and um, his books are widely read. Dr. Tom Nettles is professor of historical theology at Southern Seminary. He has his B.A. from Mississippi College, of all places, uh, his M.Div. and Ph.D. from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of numerous books, including By His Grace and For His Glory, Baptist in the Bible, the highly influential volume with, uh, which he co-authored with uh, Dr. Rush Bush, and uh, also uh, a book that he co-edited with Dr. Russell Moore entitled Why I Am a Baptist, and I am so honored to have Dr. Tom Nettles on the program today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well, Mike. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, it's a, it's a true honor and a blessing. Um, let's begin with this book, uh, Ready for Reformation, Bringing Authentic Reform to Southern Baptist Churches. Now, some may say... Uh, you guys are being a little arrogant. What do you? Why do you say that there needs to be reformation in Southern Baptist churches? And uh, what do you mean by reformation? So let's start there, Doctor Nettles. Well, that's a great question. And of course, I was just reading something this morning that <clears throat> said that if a person leans on the door and the door is faulty and you crash into the room, uh, the person is sort of blamed for being a little bit uh, boisterous in his entrance. But the problem was the door, not his entrance. <laughs> and so people, uh, people who are calling for reformation may seem to be a little bit boisterous and, and arrogant, but it, it, it is because there is such a, uh, in many cases, such a, a low level of understanding of what the, the, the reality of the theological condition of the church is like. And so when someone begins to call for just basic reform in the understanding of theological issues, it seems like that they're, they're being a little bit uh, pushy and that they are, they're really calling for more than is necessary in the churches. Mm-hmm. But the call for Reformation is just a call for a uh, sort of a full-hearted and encyclopedic embracing of all that God has revealed to us. It's saying that God has given us the Bible for a purpose, and that purpose is for the calling out and for the sanctifying of his people, and that uh, our task as churches and as gospel ministers is to take seriously the fullness of that revelation for God's glory and for the good of his people. So historically, when we talk about Reformation, I think I make the point in Ready for Reformation that, that there are two major areas of recovery. One is what we call the formal principles, which... Mm-hmm simply means that there is an authority that uh, tells us what it is we should believe and how we should act. It's, it, is, it is that which forms the church and forms the doctrine. And, in, and at least in many parts of evangelicalism, and specifically in Southern Baptist life, we have been involved in the formal principle, that is a recovery of the doctrine of biblical inspiration, biblical authority, right. that the Bible itself is a revelation from God and therefore is without error, and we're to take it seriously in all of its uh, propositions. You well, say, we've recovered that. Yeah, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah, well, I think that we are still in the process, but we've done a good job, I think, of, of defining what the Bible is and of recovering an, uh, an earnest kind of adherence to its authority. But the next question is, well, what does the Bible teach? What are the doctrines that we should build on this? Mm. And I think that is the level in which we're involved right now, is a rediscovery of the truths that historically we have said the Bible teaches. And that is called the material principle. What actually are the shaping doctrines that are in Scripture that uh, we should embrace uh, for 
the uh, edification of, of God's people and for setting forth in, in truthful contours what the glory of the gospel is. On page two of your book, Ready for Reformation, you write that Reformation involves much more, however, than the mere recovery of biblical authority. Reformation penetrates the deep recesses of theological self-perception and purpose and institutions involving time, patience, sacrifice, and honest self-criticism. Elaborate on that, please. Yeah, well... Anytime you have a body of revelation, it certainly does involve time in order to understand it. And so we have to give ourselves, uh, we have to be, be patient with ourselves and with others in, in recovering all that, that the truth is. It's not just absolutely self-evident when you read the, the text, all that it's saying. There are some things that are much more clear than others, and you, you begin to build on those truths that are clear and then see the, the integration that all these truths have with each other. And so that's what I mean by, by time and patience. And uh, what I mean by healthy self-criticism is that uh, any institution has to realize that there, there are times at which we can get off course. We can begin to introduce man-made ideas. This was one of the, the great problems during the time of Jesus. The Pharisees thought that they were responding simply to divine revelation, but they built so many traditions that they accepted as truthful that Jesus spent much of his time criticizing the traditions that hid the Word of God from the people. And mm. I think that's something we need to do. We need to be involved in, in, in a in very deep self-criticism, uh, not, not from the standpoint of thinking we are better than others by criticizing others, but I'm, I really do mean self-criticism as a denomination and as evangelicals to see how we have developed so many traditions and so many ideas and so many expectations and so many practices within our churches that are simply culturally conditioned, that are not at all related to what God tells us to do. And the more of those things we can eliminate, then the, the more we can be open to a healthy and sort of first-hand response to what Scripture itself says. And then, I, of course, I go on to suggest some of the areas in which I think that kind of self-criticism, what, what some of the areas it would involve, and we should engage. Again, honored to have on the program Dr. Tom Nettles, author of the book Ready for Reformation, among many, many others, and also By His Grace and for His Glory. Now, uh, the Ready for Reformation is published by Broadman and Holman Publishers, and it's available in many bookstores, uh, including Lifeway. By His Grace and for His Glory, the best way to get that, if, if not the only way, I'm not sure, is through founders.org, where um, Dr. Nettles, if I can just pry a little bit, it was reported in, on the Internet here, that uh, there's a possibility you may be taking a, um, a call at uh, Grace Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Well, that's interesting you had, you had mentioned that. I, I'm in Cape Coral, Florida right now. Yeah, I knew you were uh, probably. And, and, but um, I have uh, come to a decision built upon some very earnest uh, prayer and seeing just how healthy and wonderful the situation is here that I am I'm not going to accept this call. Okay. I'm going to remain at Southern Seminary in theological education. Wow. Uh, it's been a reconfirmation, a renewal of uh, commitment to that. It hasn't got anything to do with any negative feelings here. In fact, this has been a wonderful weekend in such a, a just a tremendously important church and to see the power of uh, doctrinal preaching in the ministry of Dr. Tom Askell yes. and the healthiness is produced in this church uh, as I was answering questions from 
the various committees here, I began to think through what it is that I, how I view the relationship between theological education and the local church, and just began gradually to come to a clarification in my own mind that the Lord had placed me where he had called me, that, that he wanted me to continue to engage in theological education uh, and to help prepare young men who are on the threshold of going into pastoral ministry with the kinds of the concerns that I've manifest in both these books you've mentioned. Sure. Uh, I became convinced that that is what the Lord wanted me to do, and so uh, you're one of the first, since you asked, you're one of the first season, persons I've told, except a couple of administrators at Southern. I've called them this morning and talked to them about it. So, well, thank you uh, for that honor. You're, I appreciate you're, it. You're getting the scoop on this. <laughs> In the opening segment, you mentioned, uh, just before we went to the break, uh, the need to eliminate culturally created practices, and I brought up the danger of a corrupted evangelism. So let's let's talk about that, that uh, if we can. Uh, what do you mean by culturally created practices and the need to eliminate them? Yeah, well, um, by, by that I'm talking about ways in which we think that from a human standpoint we can feel the transaction of faith. We can tell a person what faith is and how to do it. And so we create prayers. If you'll pray this prayer, then this means that you have faith and God will save you. Mm. So we create various venues within which we make it, uh, we teach persons how to make a decision, whether it's an invitation at the end of a service and we say, you know, you come down and by coming down, this is your indication you have faith in Christ. Or we lead them through a, a booklet and say, now here's a prayer. If you, you pray this sincerely, this is faith in Christ and you can be saved. And so we create all of these things in which we try to, to give some sort of a, a real um, uh, humanly contrived understanding of what faith is, and we define it just simply in terms of some sort of, a, of use of words or a human decision that we can make that might not really involve a genuine sense of repentance of sin and an awareness that we are utterly and absolutely dependent upon the completed work of Christ, and we throw ourselves upon his mercy and take refuge in him. To the degree that we substitute these, these humanly contrived uh, verbalizations for faith, then we have created a barrier to true faith. Mm. We have created something that, that convinces people that they're Christians when they have not really come to a, a sense of their absolute need of Christ. We perhaps have met a need they have for some sort of a, well, I just want to make sure I'm okay for eternity, and if the preacher tells me I can do this and be okay for eternity, I'm willing to do it. Yes. But we've, we cut people short of a sense, uh, a deeply uh, felt sense of a need for Christ, uh, for forgiveness of sins, for their violations of the law of God, for their having been displeasing to God, that Christ is their only refuge because he alone has righteousness. He alone is pleasing to God in his sacrifice, uh, and that uh, we, we do not, we cannot have faith until we have come to that kind of a sense that we must flee to Christ as a refuge. Yes. Uh, and, and I think that we have created many things in our evangelical culture that substitute for genuine biblical repentance and faith. Solus Christus. Uh, a substantial shift, you write in your book on page 40, a substantial shift in both the theology and methodology of evangelism has occurred, however, and threatens the concept of the a regenerate church just as surely as the doctrine of infant baptism. And that speaks to what you were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, infant baptism, uh, is, I have many brethren, of course, that, are, that believe in infant baptism and have 
strong views of the gospel. I personally believe infant baptism is wrong. It can't be warranted from Scripture. And it has a tendency in many situations to create a church membership of people that are not regenerate. But what I'm saying is that, that Baptists who believe in believer's baptism and believe in a regenerate church membership, by their practices of cutting short the work of the Spirit of God and bringing about regeneration, we substitute our human decisions and our human transactions for the work of God's Spirit and regeneration. So we, sort of through a different door, introduce into church membership many who are unregenerate, who don't really grasp what the gospel is, who don't understand what sanctification is because they don't have the Spirit of God, and they're very content with the kind of uh, carnality and worldliness by which the churches are governed, simply because many of the members have never come to the point of regeneration. And we have created that by our, uh, by our, quite often by our methods of evangelism. You talk about in the book a contemporary crisis, wherein you, you say also in the book, you say, zeal without knowledge, however, kills. And we've become very proficient as well as persistent in evangelistic immediacy. Um, I, I believe I heard Jeff Noblet, maybe it was Russ Moore over the weekend, uh, say uh, over the latter part of last week, rather, that we've almost made the invitation-slash-altar call uh, a sacrament in the Southern Baptist Church. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. Now, there, now I wouldn't want to paint it with such a broad, broad brush that people sure. who are trying to be careful sure. about this are offended or, uh, or not appreciated for the care they take in it. Sure. But I do think that the system itself has operated for so long in Southern Baptist life as just sort of the... The, the, the final stamp of conversion, that we have created sort of a sacramental overtone to this invitation system, that we have thought, thought that that's the way we do evangelism. If we don't give the invitation, how will we do evangelism? How will people and get so saved, we, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so, and so we say, yeah, how does a person get saved unless they answer the invitation? And so we've lost the, our real understanding of the power of the gospel itself to operate in the human mind and bring them to repentance and faith. We think we've got to bring them to repentance and faith by giving them this physical movement they can do. And if we can somehow get them to see that it's a wise thing and a brave thing to make this physical movement to come down to the front of the church, then they will be saved. Mm-hmm. And so we have, we have created this sacrament out of a purely humanly contrived uh, action uh, and have, have effectively... Uh, substituted it for a genuine, genuine interaction with gospel, repentance, and faith. Uh, so this, this idea of immediacy, if we can give the person something to do immediately that constitutes repentance and faith, then we can be evangelistically successful. But I think it's had the opposite effect. It's made us really be evangelistically unsuccessful because people are responding to something that is not the gospel. So again, thank you, sir, for being on the program with us today. In oh, your, a privilege. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you so much, too. A recovery of a grace-centered theology. As we're talking about uh, Reformation uh, in the church, in the Southern Baptist Church, define what you mean by a grace-centered theology. Haven't we always had a grace-centered theology, some may say? Well, that's a great question. And, of course, this is one of my very favorite subjects. And I, I could spend a long time talking about my journey into a discovery of and a love for the doctrines of of grace, and you are right in saying, yeah, we've always had a grace-centered theology. Because you ask any Baptist 
what is grace, and they will probably say, well, it's, God's, it's unmerited favor of God toward man. Hmm. Now, that's the definition I learned, but I, I didn't really grasp what that meant, the unmerited favor of God toward man. I didn't understand what unmerited meant. I always thought that there's a sense in which God owes us grace, uh, that if he doesn't give us grace, he's unfair. And as I began to understand more about uh, the sinful condition of man and the reality of God's purposes in giving in, uh, in his own glory, setting forth his own glory in all things, and began to see more about the teaching of Scripture on such issues as God's electing favor. Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Right. And he's saying, no man can come to me unless the Father who gave them to me draw him. draws him. Right. And, and then I began to see verses like, like in Ephesians 1 that is so clear as he has given us all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And Ephesians 2, that talks about even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive and, and um, put us in heavenly places with Christ. So all of these things began to take on a, a vast importance to me, and I began to see that unless we, if we don't have a God-centered theology, then we'll have a man-centered theology. And if we have a man-centered theology, then we're going to be calling God into question for things he does for his own glory. And we're going to think that all things revolve around us. And it's going to make a big difference in our lives, too, as far as, you know, thinking providentially. Well, why does this suffering occur? If it's all about me, why does this occur? And if, uh, if it's all about me, why do I have so many problems with this, is this issue and with this particular event? And once you begin to move away from a God-centered theology into a man-centered theology, it completely, eventually deconstructs the whole Christian faith. Dr. Nettles, thanks That's again. Right. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you, sir. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. And remember Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek. I'm Mike Corley. We'll see you next time. <laughs>